This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision, where in this episode, we'll look at government plans to take a larger role in one of our most fundamental needs, putting a roof over our head. Now to the government's aspiration to oversee the construction of one million new homes in an effort to address the housing crisis facing many Australians. I am proud to announce that we have just struck a new national housing accord between governments, investors and industry to build the affordable homes that our country desperately needs. The ambition of this accord is big and it's bold. It's an aspiration to build one million new, well-located homes over five years from 2024. Housing in Australia has long been a hot topic. Until recently, the housing market had galloped ahead of stagnant wages, putting home ownership increasingly out of reach for many. And, as we'll hear, those in the private rental market have suffered rising rents and insecurity. The National Housing Accord, announced in last month's federal budget, produced that striking headline, one million new homes to be built by the end of the decade. But for many housing experts, the real news was the commitment to increase social and affordable housing by a total of 50,000 homes. The Accord is an interesting development. It wasn't referred to ahead of the budget, so it was quite a big announcement. I'm Nicole Gurren, Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Sydney. And what it signifies is a negotiated agreement, if you like, between the Commonwealth states, local government as party to it, as well as private sector players. And it's a recognition that you really need, well, you need leadership at the Commonwealth level, but we need all of those sectors, state, local government, as well as private players from the community housing sector, as well as for-profit housing providers and investors. And what's on the table is some funding from the Commonwealth at minimum to support the financing of an additional 10,000 social and affordable homes. The states have apparently committed to match that with an additional 10,000 across the state and territories, as well as an overarching goal to deliver a million homes over the five years from 2024. Now, that million homes is to be delivered by the market, only 20,000 plus the 30,000 that was originally on the table from Commonwealth funds will be social and affordable as far as the commitments go so far. But the wording of the accord emphasises that all of the funding and all of the efforts around identifying new land and potentially fast-tracking rezonings and planning approvals, all of that is nestled with a language that the goal is to deliver affordable homes that are well located. Is what's being proposed enough? Research by the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute and others says that at a minimum right now we need somewhere between 300 to 500,000 social and affordable homes to meet the existing and short-term projected need. We've got approaching a million households in rental housing stress depending on how you measure it. And so the objective of building another million homes from 2024 
really is about maintaining business as usual. That's not addressing the needs right now of low-income rental households who are living in extreme housing stress. So really it's signalling an attempt to maintain housing supply at a period at which the private market is expected to move into a downturn. So we know that we're good at building new houses in Australia when prices are high and rising. We we see the record increases in um, new house building that we actually saw over the previous past five years. But we know too that just increasing housing supply doesn't and hasn't addressed the housing affordability problem where it's really biting and that is for people who are unable to enter home ownership whereas once they would have been able to save for a deposit and and qualify for a loan we see increasing barriers to that and even worse are the low and very low income renters who aren't able to access an affordable rental property and who, if they're lucky enough to do so, also face the ongoing insecurity associated with Australia's private rental sector. So the promise of 50,000 homes, let's be generous, the promise of 50,000 new social and affordable housing homes over a five-year period takes us to about 5% of annual new housing production. We should be between 15 and 20% in Australia just to keep up with ongoing need. So we've had a shift in direction, but we haven't yet seen the complete system reform that we're going to need if we're going to address this problem. We're now talking about 50,000 social and affordable housing units built over five years. And really in the last decade, the numbers have been far, far lower than that usually around two or 3,000 per year. So maybe 10 to 15,000 would have been the, the status quo if the previous government had stayed in place, I, I would say. I'm Hal Pawson. I'm Professor of Housing Research and Policy at UNSW. So, you know, it's a lot more than that. But yeah, the numbers are still fairly modest when you consider the backlog of need that's been building up for decades, even if you just look at the, the numbers of people who are registered on social housing waiting lists, you know, we're talking about somewhere around 160 or 170,000 households. That's probably, you know, 300,000 people at least. So even if you look at that number, 50,000 more over five years is, yeah, it's a good start, but it's it's a lot less. In fact, the need numbers are probably a lot bigger than what the waiting list shows us because, you know, so many people realise that there's almost no point in registering for social housing because unless you're a multiple complex needs household, you're chances of actually getting a tenancy are very low and it might be over a decade before your name comes to the top of a list. So it's a pointless piece of bureaucracy to put your name down. So the real numbers are much bigger even than that. What exactly is the problem? Is it simply a shortage of homes? Look, it's it's not a simple shortage of dwellings. In fact, if we look at very baseline ABS census data, how many homes are vacant on census night. If anything, over the past few censuses, we've actually had a marginal increase in the number of vacant homes in Australia. That's not unusual. We do know that vacancy is part of a housing system as people are moving, selling, new homes come onto the market, etc., and you've got second home ownership. But what it does tell us is that there's no absolute shortage of homes. The shortage is of homes that are affordable and available 
to people on very low incomes, so to very low income renters in particular. And that problem has come about because over the past 20 years, we've scaled back our investment in new social and affordable housing. In fact, some data indicates that over the past couple of years, we've actually built less than we've lost to, to redevelopment. So we've actually gone backwards and we've certainly gone backwards in terms of social housing as a proportion of all our dwelling stock. So less than 2% of all of the new homes that are built in Australia are built by government in the social and affordable housing sector at present. We can compare that to the 1990s when the figure was over 10%. So we've failed to build the right type of housing as a proportion of our new housing stock. And when we switched to subsidising low-income renters to meet their needs in the private market, we didn't make sure that that private market was delivering enough low-cost homes that would be able to be earmarked for people on very low income. So we didn't do that either. So we, we mucked up our policy arrangements. And more widely, Australia, as many other countries in the world, have been caught up in this spiral where house price inflation has so dramatically outpaced wage growth. You know, wages have been flat, House prices have literally gone through the roof until very recently. And that's a, a global process called the financialization or the assetization of housing, where homes are valued more for their money-making potential than for their you know, foundational use as a source of shelter. And for those people who weren't already homeowners or weren't related to homeowners that they might be able to inherit some equity from or some support when trying to enter the market themselves, they've been left behind. And so we've had quite a significant growth in the in the number of people renting privately and who are facing retirement in the rental sector. So now more than a third of Australian households rent. We're in that situation because the private market has been becoming less effective at providing for that part of our population over the last 20 or 30 years. And government has also ceased to invest in any sustained way in government-supported social and affordable housing. So those two things coming together have created that growing deficit. If we just talk about the private rental market, there's, there's an analysis of the private rental market using census data that's done every five years. And that shows us that there's a, a deficit in the scale of private rental provision that's affordable to low-income private renters, a deficit that's been growing every census since the 1990s. So the national deficit of private rental housing affordable to low-income private renters was under 50,000 in 1996. In 2016, it was above 200,000. And, you know, it's steadily increasing. We haven't got the numbers from 2021 census on that yet, but it's almost certain to be significantly higher. So the private market has not been sort of taking up the slack, if you want to, to put it that way. There's a growing number of low-income earners who are finding it hard to pay the rent. A new report from the Productivity Commission has found 170,000 households are left with less than $250 each week after they pay for the roof over their heads. 
Hobart has become the most expensive capital city in the country for renters. The Rental Affordability Index shows even those on medium incomes can't afford to rent in many areas of the city. Over the past 12 months, rents in Adelaide have increased sharply, making it the second least affordable market in the nation, according to the latest Rental Housing Affordability Index. We don't have an overall housing shortage, but rather a shortage of rental housing that's affordable, especially for people on low incomes. What do the terms social and affordable housing actually mean? And what does it cost the people lucky enough to find it? The broad definitions that are used in the housing sector to describe these different categories, there's a term social housing, which is used to describe public housing, which is owned and operated by the state. I'm Jago Dodson. I'm a professor of urban policy and director of the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. The term affordable housing tends to refer to housing that is priced at a rate below the prevailing market rate given the type and location of the dwelling for whatever reasons, whether that's on the basis of it being owned and operated by a charitable non-government organisation who uses their charitable status to reduce their tax burden and therefore offer the, the housing at a lower than market rate or some other provider that's, that's offering housing below the, the typical market rate. Social housing, that's community and public housing, is typically rented at a ratio of rent to income around 25 to 30% of tenant income, whereas affordable housing tends to be more around the 70 to 80% of tenant income or more commonly 70 to 80%, maybe slightly more of the actual prevailing market rate that the dwelling would command in the private rental market. Social housing tends in the contemporary era to be targeted to individuals or households in the greatest extent of general social distress, so typically on low income, often a pension or some other form of welfare income. Community housing tends to be a little bit more targeted to different client groups, often providing specific forms of housing that meet particular needs, for example, supported housing for people with disabilities. Affordable housing tends to be targeted more at a generalised category of low-income tenants, whether they're welfare recipients or low-income workers. In the years after World War II, Australian governments invested in housing to meet the needs of not just low-income renters, but low-income home buyers as well. If you look at the period immediately after the Second World War, around 50% or 52% of households owned their dwelling and the remainder effectively lived in the private rental sector. Over the next 20 years, we increased the proportion of households who were homeowners by 20 percentage points. So by the early 1970s, around 72% of households were homeowners. That's a 20% increase in home ownership over a little more than 20 years. That's probably the largest expansion of mass public welfare in the history of Australia, that facilitation of home ownership, which was partly done on the basis of organising low-cost finance through our banking system, facilitating the construction sector to become more sophisticated and capable of mass housing production and coordinating land use development, including utilising state housing commissions as land developers. And initially, the state housing commissions were set up to build social housing, and they built very large numbers of social housing dwellings. But then from the mid-1950s onwards, they switched also to building 
dwellings for sale into the private market as low-cost low dwellings. So we saw a huge increase in both the quality, the volume of dwellings in Australia during that post-war period and subsequently a massive increase in home ownership. But we also saw the public housing sector increase and therefore reduce for rental tenants the share who were in the private rental sector. Since effectively the, about the mid-1980s, we've really stopped building public housing and we've shifted to a, a highly deregulated market-driven housing system which benefits existing asset owners over those who don't have assets. We've facilitated and encouraged the expansion of the private rental sector, particularly through instruments like negative gearing and the ability to leverage relatively cheap finance off existing assets. And what we've ended up in is in a situation where the market is really not providing particularly good outcomes for those on modest and low incomes. Given long-term wage stagnation and continuing house price inflation, should we just give up on the idea of home ownership for all? We just need to clarify what we're talking about when we're having these kind of conversations because if we look at the census data from 2021 compared to 2016, over that five-year period, we've actually seen an increase in the proportion of households who are owner-occupiers. That is, home ownership is actually increasing in Australia, or it has done over the last five years. So many of these public commentaries about declining home ownership are actually erroneous when you look at official statistics. What we are seeing, though, is an increase in the proportion of homeowners who have a mortgage, and there is a lower rate of home ownership amongst young people compared to older generations. But if we look at cohorts over time, the data that is available does tend to suggest that even though households delay home ownership and then take longer to pay off their mortgages in the current era than was the case, say, 20, 40 years ago, they eventually catch up later in life. And so by the time they're in their late 60s, the rate of home ownership across equivalent cohorts is not greatly lower than it has been historically in the post-war period. Another factor that isn't well appreciated in the public debates is that the rate of first home ownership, so that's the people who are taking on home ownership for the first time in their life, that's actually well above trend in the current period. And during the middle of the pandemic in 2020, 2021, the level of first home ownership as a proportion of mortgages, for example, was far above the long-term trend. So there's a lot of concern and anxiety in the community, and there's a lot of media reports that suggest that home ownership is in some kind of catastrophic crisis. But when you look at the official data, it's less of a concerning picture than many of the headlines suggest. What has been a pattern, though, is that because of the delaying of the taking on of home ownership as a tenure by younger households, it means that they have been remaining in the private rental market, typically for much longer than might have been the case for previous generations. That means that they are subjected to the anxieties and prejudices of petty landlords who make up the majority of private rental lettings in Australia. And private rental is a very insecure tenure. The average lease is about nine to 12 months in Australia. They're subject to the whims of the market in terms of rental increases, and we've seen a lot of concern lately about that. I think the real issues in terms of housing policy are more likely to lie in the regulating of the private rental market than in providing necessarily additional support for home ownership. So do we need better protection for renters? 
Yeah, well, Australia has a tradition of relatively light regulation of private rental housing, if you compare us with other countries. So what I mean by that is that that the balance of rights and responsibilities between landlords and tenants is quite heavily weighted towards property owners rather than residents. And that's that's a tradition which is quite similar to most Anglophone countries, um, the UK and, and other English-speaking countries. But I think there's a strong argument that, especially because the way our housing system has changed over the recent decades, the way that we have been regulating private rental housing or you know, the setup for private rental housing really is no longer appropriate, even if it was historically. And what I mean by that is that more and more people are renting a home for longer periods of their life or in perpetuity for that matter, being a lifelong renter. So it's not a situation which is for a lot of people just short term, just a temporary thing, which really we don't need to worry too much about. If you're privately renting for five, 10 years, or maybe for your entire lifetime, then the weak set of rights that you have really becomes a problem. What we can see over the last few years, if we look at the developments that have been taking place internationally in housing policy, is that one of the striking things is that some of the other countries that are more like Australia have been actually modernising their rental regulation framework. And particular leadership here comes from the government in Scotland, which has modernised in quite a significant way its private rental regulation framework in 2015. And quite a few other countries have been inspired by that example and have been making changes to their own systems, the most important of which is increasing tenant security. New Zealand's an example of another country nearby that has done that, but also in Australia, The government of Victoria in 2021 introduced a whole set of reforms to private rental regulation, which substantially emulate what Scotland did in 2015. And the most important part of that is creating a a system where a landlord doesn't have the unlimited power to end a tenancy. Landlords can end tenancies only for specified reasons that are stated in law. So it means that the level of security that you have as a tenant is is not absolute, but it's significantly increased. And there's no longer a situation where the landlord can simply hold out the threat of eviction if you as a tenant are trying to simply assert your rights to have your urgent repairs sorted out and you need to be able to do that without the fear of being kicked out as a result. Unless we change the rental laws, we'll have to look again at the age pension, which in Australia is relatively modest. It's based on the assumption that by the time people retire, they'll own their own home. Lawrence Troy from the School of Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney. It's really important to understand that our whole housing model is actually deeply embedded with our whole social model in Australia. And and what that means is the whole welfare pension system. Housing is deeply implicated in that. And so if we start to say, well, home ownership is not for everybody, we need to be addressing those kind of downstream welfare impacts of people who can't get into home ownership or don't want to get into home ownership. Because what we don't want is a big tranche of 
disadvantaged people because they have not been able to get into home ownership, reaching retirement, suddenly being thrown into poverty because they have to pay rent in a market setting, which is unaffordable against a pension. And we already see parts of that happening where people are moving out of the city, moving to regional locations because of housing stress, older people. And this particularly at the minute impacts older women because historically they, they've come out worse. Often they don't have the same levels of wealth. So there is a gendered problem in all of this as well. So we need to address all of that at the same time. It's not just simply about making rental more secure. It's about addressing the wealth implications of not being a home ownership. As we've heard, we can look overseas for ways to rebalance our tenancy laws more fairly, but there are different models of home ownership as well. Julie Lawson from the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. Finland, for example, has something called right to occupancy housing, where you own around 15% of the dwelling and the rest of it you rent at a much reduced rate. But that equity in the dwelling gives you a sense of security. It also offers you a form of saving that can grow over time and keeps pace with the accumulation of land and housing values. So it offers you some kind of, if you like, savings mechanism. So that is a, an option which exists very successfully for young families in Finland, which could easily be tailored to work in Australia. So if we look, for instance, at Singapore, which is a sort of much lauded example, 80% of homes in Singapore and Singaporean households are living in housing that's been built essentially by the government's public housing agency. And that housing is provided across a range of different housing products. It's always very well located. There's a whole infrastructure around making sure that households are able to access the housing product that they can afford and that they're able to finance that over time. And that's with very strong government involvement in the planning in the building and in the financing of homes. And that's primarily home ownership in Singapore. We're unlikely to see Australian governments follow Singapore's example. And as we've heard, the National Housing Accord is only a modest, if positive, development. Jago Dodson says what's needed is a change to the way the Australian tax system effectively subsidises private landlords through negative gearing, allowing landlords to deduct the costs associated with their properties from their taxable income. With today's rising interest rates, landlords will be able to make even greater deductions at an increased cost to the public purse. During the last three or so years, we've seen very, very low interest rates. So the interest burden on landlords has been very, very low. We are seeing interest rates going up. So we'll start to see landlords writing off their interest payments at higher levels, which means that the tax concession of negative gearing is going to become more costly over the next few years. It's currently looking at about $8 billion a year. I think we need to ask the question, are we getting good value and putting $8 billion worth of tax concession into a highly unregulated, opaque, low accountability, petty landlord sector, should we be taking that effective subsidy and crafting it in different ways so that we get much better outcomes? There are various ways you could turn negative gearing as a kind of private rental subsidy into other kinds of payments where you require the landlords to only target particular tenant 
groups, that there's a you know, minimum quality standards for the dwellings that they let out, a whole raft of measures like that, you could convert it into a low-income housing tax credit that they have to invest in a given an institutional vehicle rather than in an individual dwelling. Or we could simply say no more negative gearing, we're going to take that $8 billion a year and put it into public or social housing. So I think that's going to become an issue that we really need to grapple with. The continued sort of subsidy of the petty landlord who writes off the cost of investment at great expense to the public purse, I think we need to move beyond that if we're going to have a, a just and equitable housing system in the future. Professor Jago Dodson. My thanks to him and my other guests, Hal Pawson, Nicole Gurren, Julie Lawson and Lawrence Troy. You'll find their details on the Rear Vision website. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Russell Stapleton for ABC RN. Hey, history lovers. If you enjoy a deep dive into the past, then join me, Kirsty Melville, for the History Listen. Every week, our episodes allow you to step into a time machine and immerse yourself in a story from the past in full technicolour detail. Hear from the people who were there and from those who've dug down into the archives. We bring the past to life. So catch us for the History Listen on the ABC Listen app.